Welcome to our first live streaming of the DD Geopolitics podcast. We are joined by my lovely co-host JM and the ever awesome Danny Haifong. How are you? I'm good. Um, it's good to be on here live with you. Oh, I know. You've been an inspiration because I've avoided going live for a year and I've finally been talked into it because Danny does it, so I have to do it. And Afi Kosick does it, so I have to do it. So now here we are. So tell us. Um, how was your trip to China? <laughs> it was incredible. It's always, you know, this is my second trip. It was great to be back. I actually went to a few places I had already been, which I didn't even know until, uh, well, I knew I was going to be in Beijing, but I didn't know I was going to be back in Dunhuang. And I got to see a lot of changes there. I mean, they actually have, it's a very small city on the, in the desert, but now it actually has a city center and its tourism industry is Kind of booming and so it was really interesting to see that change because when i was there in 2019 a lot of things just had not been built yet so it was really cool to see the development and to see how fast china builds things and also to uh you know just be back in a country that is really at the forefront of everything that i know both of us uh, talk about <laughs> on our respective channels like to see that happening in real time uh that that kind of leadership the attention to uh, people's needs and also the attention to principles that are um i guess anathema to uh, the unipolarists the united states and the collective west it's so it's always good to be back but uh yeah we can definitely get into way more because i could talk <laughs> on and on I mean, and on <laughs> but really like we haven't seen you in so long we haven't even seen we haven't seen you since before bricks before your UN um, yeah. your UN uh, speech. So uh, maybe for our listeners, I mean, I know we shared it on our channel, but um, do you want to go through a little bit about what the, that experience was like speaking to the UN about weapons and arms being pumped into Ukraine for the foreseeable future? <laughs> Yeah, so it was the 68th meeting, and uh, Russia holds this meeting quite regularly and has done so throughout the conflict. And, uh, you know, when I was invited by the ambassador uh, to the UN uh, from Russia, Dmitry Polanski, I was thinking, uh, well, this is going to be really interesting because honestly, I tune out the UN Security Council most of the time. It, it really isn't a body that's effective. And uh, most know that most around the world know that most diplomats know that that there's huge problems with the UN Security Council because of its makeup and because of the dominance of the United States and its right to veto anything it wants and its right to take up all the time that it wants for its own ambitions so I was really curious about what it would be like and and to be f honest it, it really didn't disappoint it was actually quite uh, exhilarating in some respects because I was giving a briefing on that exact topic on the topic of uh, the dangers that the collective West's ongoing arming of Ukraine poses to global peace and stability a very UN Security Council appropriate topic and uh, to see how the world is divided from the permanent members and the UN permanent members on this issue is pretty clear to see uh, uh, for example, Mozambique and Gabon, and now Gabon is in the news because of the coup there. But even before that, you know, these two countries, uh, they're non-permanent members right now. And to see the contrast between, for example, them and Japan, for example, and how 
uh, Gabon and Mozambique were very neutral. They approached the question on grounds of focusing on the arms, focusing on the escalating militarization and being very careful not to demonize Russia and not to really point out any single party was a really stark contrast, for example, to Japan, who's Japan's delegate. Uh, what he ended up doing was just repeating whatever Ukraine and whatever NATO would say on the topic for uh, blasting Russia, attempting to paint Russia as the principal and primary aggressor. So uh, that was very clear to see. And then, of course, giving the briefing was a great experience talking. Uh, it was a very short uh, briefing, 10 minutes long. Not difficult, given that we have now two plus years of uh, this conflict. Um uh, you know, uh, escalating and the United States even back in 2021, sending so-called lethal aid to Ukraine. So it wasn't uh, really difficult to research and do. And of course, providing some of the context that always gets left out from this conflict. But I, I enjoyed the most uh, triggering the uh, French and UK ambassadors, you know, France. Uh, their <laughs> he was just decrying how Russia uses the UN Security Council as its propaganda platform unironically and then being called a fringe journalist by the UK delegate uh, oh know, wow yeah it was you know it was it was one of those interesting moments where all you can do is smile because well, what is a fringe you know, journalist <laughs> a fringe <laughs> journalist is essentially to these kind of uh, people to these uh, you know uh, 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 spokespersons for war and uh, uh, war stenographers are anyone who challenges their right to uh, plunder and destroy the planet via their militarization and militarism. That's that's how the UK and, and France reacted. And it's just so, I mean, the US, he was chairing, the delegate for the US was chairing the, uh, the meeting unironically too. And uh, you know, while he was a little bit more measured, he was also quite triggered. But it's always really interesting to see how the European countries, as these now vassals of the United States, they often play the attack dog in the, the uh, to uh, uh, to the United States as foreign policy agenda. And it is so clear to see when you watch UN Security Council meetings, in particular this one. It was very clear to see that they play up a part of being the most enthusiastic cheerleaders for really what are the u.s's war okay. aims and of course europe is just following along that's kind of what i was going to ask i was going to ask if you kind of saw more like that the you that the european countries are more zealous because of that because they're like <laughs> united states handlers were there like watching them so i mean we kind of see that in the baltics where they're like who can scream the loudest and who can do the most for ukraine um so I, yeah i was kind of curious about that and <clears throat> It's interesting you mentioned Japan because in the last couple of days they have really taken a step forward, <laughs> went and visited Ukraine, and now I really don't know what's happening. They've promised to help rebuild, and they promised to help the through the they promised to help rebuild and promised to help with peace, and then uh, right on the heels of that, South Korea came out and said we'll give you two point three billion dollars. <laughs> so it's like what's what's happening in east asia it's just very and and then i like all the same time north korea is celebrating their 75th and the pla is just it's like debuting drones which ironically they debuted either today or yesterday and it's called the sunflower but it's <laughs> just fantastic in the face of ukraine but it's a mock-up of the shahed 
So it's it's all very the whole dynamics are very interesting. So um, I wonder if JM has any opinions on the French and U and uh, UK representatives <laughs> calling you alternative media or fringe media, which is also funny because the Daily Mail contacted me today. So I'm guessing that or a couple of days ago. So I'm guessing that um, they're uh, legitimate journalists and we would be the fringe. Mm. <laughs> so. Uh, in terms of my opinion about um, UN delegates getting uh, triggered by somebody giving testimony, they were also triggered by Ray McGovern, who used to work for the CIA and is a bona fide analyst. Um, and also these same people are triggered by Seymour Hirsch, who, um, you know, everybody talks about the Milai massacre, but it's thanks to him that we uh, first uh, knew about it. So... I, I think this is something else that also this war has shown, which is that, um, and this is actually something I think that was revealed to me that I didn't understand before about the Russian press, which is that um, in certain aspects, the Russian press is quite adversarial to the government. And a good press is never entirely your friend. A good journalist should not be your friend if you're in government. If you're in government, you should view any journalist with a kind of slight suspicion but to get triggered by one is just it's very strange because um they talk about freedom of expression freedom of of opinion but they really really just don't want to hear it uh is that the impression that you got oh yes definitely i mean it, they didn't want to be there they they believe that the un security council is really just for them they droned on and on about how the UN Security Council is being misused as if their unilateral wars are hardly ever consulted on the UN Security Council because they know that countries like Russia and China as permanent members are more most likely to veto many of their uh, war maneuvers. But uh, they attempted, as they always do, as the collective West always does, to stake out a position where they are, in fact, those who are following international law to the T, which could not be any more of a joke since the collective West has decades and decades, a laundry list of violations of international law that are ongoing, including this exact question that we were talking about. It is still a violation of international law to... Um, help another country uh, fight a conflict that or even spur a conflict that is essentially dirty and, and proxy by nature it is not within the un charter that it's uh, allowed without consulting the united nations security council to get involved in a conflict and to do it permanently and to basically steer it regardless of whether you know not everybody agrees which i think is unfortunate and a testament to the depth of mainstream media propaganda. Not everyone agrees that Russia was provoked into the conflict, despite all of the evidence that demonstrates that. But even if you don't believe that, the United States steering the conflict now, it's quite easy to see. Read any New York Times, Washington Post, read any article that covers the counteroffensive, for example, and you will literally have play-by-play -play how the neocons within the foreign policy establishment are steering the conflict, how they want it to go. Even Joe Biden's addled brain, he can even say, well, maybe we should freeze the conflict. And Blinken will say, no, we should keep fighting until the end, right? Like, this is steering the conflict. This is getting involved. This is interfering. It is not 
approved by the UN Security Council for the United States to pump weapons into Ukraine in order to basically send these uh, Ukrainian forces, whoever will fight, into a meat grinder. That's that 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 is a violation of international law, and they they want to deny. It. And I think that's part of the problem is that uh, they have to sit as a permanent member, and they have to sit alongside their number one adversary, especially on this question, Russia. And it's always going to be contentious and they're always going to be incredibly defensive, if not triggered by just having to do this. But at the same time, also, uh, when Russia starts to do things like, hey, we we have friends in the world and hey, we even have people who are willing to give a different narrative from whoever you're uh, trouncing out and parading out into uh, this space uh, will will have them come. You know, Max Blumenthal also did it too. So there are voices who are willing to speak up, and I think that's that's a problem. They they don't want to see that. They don't want to see voices speak up, and it's why they they never highlight in their uh, publications the Daily Mail. I mean, basically a tabloid. But you know, the UK has a long history of relying on tabloids for their primary source of information. And, you know, in the mainstream media, Washington Post, CNN, anyone, they don't talk to people who are fed up with the war, even though polls show that there's a majority, despite the fact that Zelensky seems to think differently, which I also find really funny when uh, he claimed that the presidential elections are going to determine what happens to Ukraine and that uh, the majority of Americans, he said, <laughs> it's just funny, the majority of Americans support this war, which is patently untrue but but that's the that's the mentality that's the mindset and they want to keep that fantasy going uh without I mean, any interruptions have you noticed like an uptick and i don't know if you get it too much but have you noticed like lately kind of an uptick on a not assault but like i don't know how else to describe it like her along online harassment of a alternative uh media and alternative i mean we have the gray zone who lost their gofundme which wound up becoming a boon for them anyway now they're like <laughs> doing their own thing about it but i mean well we've been uh kind of recently attacked a bit and now the daily mail's calling again <laughs> um and i've just kind of noticed more and more that people are getting like kind of wrapped into stuff and um that the the mainstream media is coming after us again it's just a weird, like it, it happened back in with the Pentagon papers or whatever they were, or the, that weird NATO leak. And then now it's happening again. And this is like on the heels of BRICS, G20, and kind of all of that stuff. So I'm just kind of wondering if you noticed anything yourself. Yeah, well, uh, there have been a series of attacks on, um, you know, on alternative media and on alternative voices. I, I think for me, what I've noticed the most, especially in the last uh, three to six months, is an uptick in the uh, so-called uh, NAFO trolls. Right? <laughs> like I, I've noticed that on, on Twitter, now X, is that there is uh, a real proliferation of those bots and whoever else they may happen to be just flooding flooding profiles, flooding any sort news source, personality, media, journalists, including myself, just flooding all the posts, no matter what you post about, it doesn't really matter. Uh, they find a way to, even if they're not even following you, they find a way to find you and they find a way to try to throttle your posts through ratioing and all that. 
So I've definitely noticed that. And, and in terms of just print journalism, media, you know, the uh, big monopolies that control the uh, United States and Western mainstream media, uh, there definitely has been, especially around China, there's been also a lot of attacks on those who are covering China, speaking out against the new Cold War on China. And uh, this, you know, but this has been ongoing. I think that there's always waves and I, I I think we're all remembering how the first big wave came <laughs> oh, from the beginning of the conflict where you know, entire channels taken down, uh, you know, RT and people like Lee Camp, all their channels eliminated. And then, you know, uh, even in the middle of the conflict, uh, P- the Daily Beast, for example, was going after me and Lee Jing Jing and yeah. Ben Norton and Max Blumenthal, you know, all of our uh, uh, all of our work was questioned and they were actually also going after, which just goes to show where mainstream media outlets actually work and who they work for. They were going toward all the platforms, you know, YouTube, uh, Patreon, uh, you name it. They were going to every single platform and essentially questioning them on why they would allow us basically a pressure campaign, why they would allow us to exist on these platforms. Yes. And that's, I noticed that that's a real trend and that's going to continue because, of course, the media has connections to Silicon Valley and um, all of these uh, gig economy companies that are kind of controlling the flow of income for alternative media at this time. And, and uh, I can only see that getting worse, especially as and I don't think it's any coincidence that as the conflict looks worse and worse and worse for the collective West, this kind of repression is going to get harsher and harsher because uh, there is a real need to maintain a stranglehold over the narrative that uh, just uh, uh, events of this counteroffensive show that like you, it is it is a disaster but they need to ensure these media outlets and the stenographers that they work for they need to make sure that there is absolutely no deviation from a narrative of well even if things aren't going well the, it will go well in the future. We have 2024, 2025. We should fight until the end. Uh, we're with you forever. You know, all of these narratives to keep the war going and to keep at least a semblance of enthusiasm in the public relations sphere going. But uh, it, it's quite clear that those who speak out against this and who highlight the reality, they there's traction for this. People kind of want to hear it. They want to understand why things are going uh, uh, like this, why things are happening like this. And, um, you know, I can only see that intensifying. So it's not a, I don't think it's a shock, especially as the United States in recent days has seen huge blows to its legitimacy as this so-called unipolar uh, hegemonic power, however people want to frame it, global superpower. Uh, there are huge blows that are happening now and have happened in the last few months and are it's only going to get worse because this conflict is just one part of in, of a larger pie that is increasingly going stone cold and people don't want to eat it. Well, but, but there is a question, by the way, about that, because you mentioned that the United States is suffering blows to its hegemonic status. And this is why this video is called the Emerging Counter Hegemony. But before I do that, I wanted to go on a bit of a little rant, sorry, about... Uh, 
media narrative control as a strategy as practiced by the West. So the whole idea about NAFO is, okay, we will deplatform anybody who contradicts us. We will flood social media with this one particular messaging. And by changing perceptions of the way people, our own people, and those people in countries that oppose us see things, we will change reality itself. And it's like, that's not how that works. Reality always catches up with you. Do you really think that because you post some people out there and legitimize online harassment, that it's going to change facts on the ground, that it's going to change where an artillery shell lands because NAFO posted some cruel meme? Are you stupid? Seriously? They, you think They do think that, though. I mean, you have prime ministers from Estonia telling them, like, thank you for every, behind every NAFO account is a person who was fighting for the freedom of Ukraine. Like, could you be any more melodramatic? And they believe it. They think that they are on the battlefront. They're fighting us in the information warfare. I mean, wasn't it? This isn't war, though. If people want war, they can go to the front lines. That's a real, that's a real <laughs> war. And the consequences of that are showing up by, whereby the Kiev Independence own reporting. So not just Z-Telegram, not Russian disinformation. It's in the Ukrainian press. Um, people who have heart conditions and who are HIV positive can now be drafted. Um, that's a, the reality of the war. That's a real war. Internet memes and counteracting people pointing this out, that is not war. It's This is just, it, I'm ranting here because it's incredibly immature and, grote and grotesque because, but, but also there's this question, which is that apparently we're threatening. Uh, I'm pretty sure looking at our subscriber numbers, all of us, we do very hard work. We put out a good product, but many more people read just in uh, the UK, The Guardian, The Daily Mail, The Times, the, tele uh, the Telegraph, whereas we just kind of go up here and say, um, actually, we, we <laughs> they're like, oh my god, musket shot, throw an entire artillery barrage at it. <laughs> they yeah. are so potent, they managed to get off a musket, sh a, a musket shot. Everybody panic, we must immediately lock down the information space. And it's like, yeah. you know, I, I remember during the Cold War that, um, Russian media or ideas of Soviet talking points, that were, you know, aside from the McCarthy era, they weren't seen as a threat. They were seen as a punchline. Oh, exactly. And I, I do. Th I think that in a lot of ways, they do think that this is part of the war. You also have to remember that we're talking about uh, mostly Americans and Westerners uh, and younger kids that, that haven't ever seen a war. So to them, this this is a video game. This is Call of Duty. This is you know, this is modern warfare and, and, you know, they play these games online, they stream these games online and now they're part of it all online. And it's kind of like this crazy psychotic, like, um, uh, like de detachment from reality. It's like dissociating, dissociating. It's crazy. So it, it yeah. The, um, so Sorry about the rant. Uh, the question I had was uh, the big reason we're here and the big news, which was uh, the G20 and the communique. I think that about summed it up. But what was your takeaway from the communique and what that says about it, as well as the proceedings of the D G20, Danny? Yeah, well, I think the the leader's declaration that was released uh, during the first day of the G20 summit 
was a, a to use this word trigger again was a real triggering moment for the collective west and it was really interesting i think to see the united states's reaction because you had jake sullivan come out and immediately say oh this is a good thing right and i think that says something about where the conflict in ukraine is on the united states side the, the driver of this conflict on their side uh, the United, there's been all kinds of rumblings about divisions within the United States uh, foreign policy establishment and how they want this conflict to continue. Do they want to keep allowing Ukraine to basically do whatever it wants and throw, you know, throw away all these weapons, throw away the manpower, uh, essentially grind themselves into dust as, as soon as they can versus those who are a little bit more realist and think, well, even if we do engage in a kind of permanent proxy war, that permanent proxy war has to last. And so do we pull back? Do we freeze? So I, I think Jake Sullivan's comments really do reflect a kind of changing mindset of the United States from we're going to support Ukraine until they win to we'll support Ukraine and they'll just have to keep fighting for as long as it takes. But we're not going to... Um, you know, we're not going to put forth some kind of narrative that says, yeah, we'll, um, you know, we'll attack Crimea and all of this. But there's huge divisions, which is why you often hear both of those things. You'll hear Jake Sullivan oh. say, this is great. There's disagreements. <laughs> you know, there's disagreements. We all can at least come together and talk about other issues while we hash out disagreements. A very different kind of narrative than the United States hardly ever puts out. And then you'll also have those forces, even Anthony Blinken or... Uh, they'll say something completely different. They'll say, well, yeah, no, we'll keep supporting you as long as it takes. And hey, here's some, wow, look at these attackums. We just found them in the closet and you can go have them. And please, please go use them uh, to strike Crimea, whatever, you know, like, yeah. cool, like escalate the conflict. So you'll hear both at the same time. But I think um, it, they see the Ukrainian reaction, the Ukraine side reaction on the leader's declaration, I think, more so fits with probably how the entire collective West feels about it. The G20 is supposed to be where the United States doesn't just uh, lead its vassals around like uh, the G7, for example. It doesn't just uh, uh, put out some, um, you know, put out some policy agenda that everyone agrees upon. The G20 is supposed to be where the United States really shows it is a part of this uh, diplomatic and leadership class above everyone else. It's supposed to display the United States' ability to basically control things regardless of if there are parties who may not agree. But now I think the disagreements are just, they're just irreparable. And Ukraine is the, I think, the epitome of what uh, this development really represents, this the division between those who want to see a multipolar world, those countries, and those who want to see a unipolar world. So to have a leader's declaration that essentially omits in the Western media is a good barometer for how uh, striking and perhaps shocking this was, is that the, the Western mainstream media was very keen on publishing story after story about how glaring it was to see words like Russia's aggression and invasion be taken oh. out completely and the Ukraine conflict be just simply framed as a war where there are divisions on how to interpret the causes of that war and how really every party is uh, interested in some kind of de-escalation of the conflict. That, that is um, 
that is a far cry from last year's G20 summit in Bali or the last G20 summit yes. in Bali, where the leader's declaration was very much, it's a very brief remark on it, but it was very much the US line, the Ukraine line of Russia's yes. aggression must be condemned and we are all going to stand against it. it. I think just putting those two documents together side by side, you will see how much has changed and how the Ukraine proxy war is really divided amongst those countries in the collective West committed to permanent war, despite what most of the world thinks. And then everyone else, which is the majority of the global South, including those countries in the G20, such as India, who uh, uh, they do not have the same opinion. They do not want to see sanctions on Russia. They don't want to see uh, a conflict escalate into major power conflict. Uh, they want economic stability. They want development. And lo and behold, uh, they're not going to take a position that fuels further conflict. Yeah. So they take a neutral position and they take one that will allow them to have robust relations with Russia, which most countries in the global south want, because who doesn't want to get closer to a country that has all of this energy and has all of these weapons, because Russia is a military powerhouse and Ukraine has showed it, to help you defend yourself and to help you develop your economy. It, it, it makes zero sense for the global South and the G20 once again expose this, but this time really uh, on the U.S.'s playground rather than BRICS or any other multilateral mechanism, which is really not for the United States or the collective West. And they know it. The G20 is supposed to be where the United States flexes its muscles, but it always ends up, especially in the last several summits, uh, uh, showing more and more how irrelevant of an institution it is. And now it's showing how this institution is really not just becoming outmoded, but being supplanted by those countries who are building new kinds of institutions. Well, it's interesting. I I'm glad you brought up the, the one from last year because it is a very stark contrast. And then to have Macron come out today and say, <laughs> I, like, basically, like, I don't know what you guys are all complaining about. The G20 is not for that. And you're like, but it was last year. It was so much last year that didn't Ukraine, wasn't Ukraine going to go last year? <laughs> I think they might have gone, like, via tele, tele, like, conference. But, like, yeah, Macron came out and said, like, no, that's not what this conference is about. And it's like, oh, like, now it's not? And so it's, yeah, it's, and I, it's really And I just want to add, too, that um, I think a big part of this was India, because I think the United States is really walking of, uh, on kind of coal with India. They want better relations. They want to pull India into an anti-China camp. Into They want to try to massage India and say, hey, maybe you shouldn't be so close to Russia. They really want to influence India's economic trajectory. We saw that with this economic corridor, which is honestly going to be a joke. It's even just hearing the United States and Europe talk about this new economic corridor with India and Saudi Arabia, et cetera, it'll help those countries likely, but it's going to be very small in scope. So to see them uh, beat their chests about it is actually quite satisfying. But uh, all, but really, this is about India and, and how the United States and even France, these countries, they, they have very little leverage with India. They no. want India to be within their camp, but they know that if they anger India too much, they're just going to push India yeah. right into a uh, relationship right. with Russia and even perhaps into uh, further attempts to normalize with China, which would be the nightmare of all nightmares for oh. the United States. <laughs> well, for that, not for us. We, yeah. It would be the, the blessing. Um, 
yeah, India is just vibing. I think that India gets, you know, India is such a complicated behemoth of a nation. I mean, there's so many people with so many different, you know, cultures and walks of life. And India's got to, India has to act in her best interests at all times. And they've done a stellar job of maintaining neutrality. And Jai, Jai Shankar has done a fantastic job as a foreign minister. I will say it and I'll probably get hate, but I think he's the best foreign minister in the world right now. <laughs> yes, I said it. But um, yeah, so I, I think that they did a fabulous job with this G20. But I do want to get your opinion because I know you have a schedule, but I do want to get your opinion on BRICS before we have to go. So um, what did you oh, yeah. think of the additions? And um, how do you feel about them now? Like kind of the after effects, like we've seen them already start bartering on a huge scale, buying airports with oil, buying <laughs> nuclear power plants with oil, like... Um, I think Iran went to Venezuela and was like, all right, we're going to start doing these deals and get you guys ready to go into BRICS. Um, and, it, and it's mm -hmm. been, and, and you know what? And you, I have a lot of hope for BRICS because I'm an, a, a utopian per type of person. But, um, and just to see that after that, with all of the hope that it brought to the global South and the African nations, and just to see the West, like Westerners just shit on it. Like, Bricks is a paper tiger. Bricks and currency is worth nothing. Like, look at these people. Like, it's just, you guys have no idea what's even coming. All the while, they're like, like screaming the accolades of this psycho from Argentina. And it's like, what is, what, like, what world? So um, I'm kind of wondering, like, how you feel about the additions and where Bricks is going. Uh, well, I, I don't think there's any answer from a rational person that could be anything other than really good. I, I mean, if, if you're a rational thinker, if you understand what's happening in the world, then you understand that the strengthening of BRICS, uh, especially how rapidly it has occurred, is a really good thing for the planet. And uh, the BRICS summit, it was so interesting, the coverage of it, because I think you know, I spoke with Pepe, Pepe Escobar. I know you all have as well. And and many other observers, those who are following really closely, those who are even there all said, well, it seems like things are a little bit more quiet than we had expected. And some of that was because of all of the really deep conversations that were already happening, coming out of South Africa's foreign ministry, coming out of Essentially, all uh, all of the major BRICS members were all saying something big. Think big things are going to happen, and then after the first day, uh, no, nothing was really happening. They were talking, and that's great, but nothing was really happening. But then, in the second day, when they announced this huge expansion, I, I think it uh, really, even though it wasn't, you know, some people were saying, "Well, there's 30, 20, 20 who've applied, forty who want to join," yeah. and they admitted six. Well, while that could be seen as, wow, they didn't really admit that many. No, it, I thought that was a lot. But the fact that they <laughs> even admitted these six and the, I think this is one thing I harped on. I wrote an article for the Global Times about this is the, the countries that entered it are really important and really do demonstrate exactly where things are heading, yes. not just with BRICS, but with the multipolar world as a whole. I mean, Saudi Arabia, UAE, these countries have been yes. the most critical to the United States's continued hegemony. The like oil for arms partnership with Saudi Arabia, the petrodollar, the ability 
for Saudi Arabia to assist the United States in whatever venture it has going on, whether it's Syria or Libya, et cetera. Like these wars, Saudi Arabia was critical in assisting the United States in and helping forward its project. It's for a new American century, et cetera. So the fact that Saudi Arabia and UAE critical also to Saudi Arabia is really a U.S. proxy war on Yemen. Uh, the fact that these two countries have shifted so quickly, I mean, change guards so rapidly under the Biden administration, how they have both pursued a more independent foreign policy, and the fact that they were two of the most enthusiastic applicants of BRICS, and also given their importance in the energy sector, those two countries alone really do shatter the uh, myth that yes. uh, U.S. hegemony has a future. But uh, then you can go down the list, right? Egypt, also another critical country for the U.S.'s control of Northern Africa and uh, the Arab world. Uh, you can look at Argentina. Argentina was not supposed to join BRICS, was not supposed to. And it, Argentina's politics could very well take it in so a very negative <laughs> direction. Yeah. Yeah, but they weren't even supposed to symbol. They weren't even supposed to uh, be there. Argentina was talking. It was like they weren't even going to attend. So no. the fact that their application was submitted and accepted. And regardless of what happens, we've seen this occur with countries like Brazil. Regardless of what happens internally, politically, this will be the trend. Regardless if they join now or if they join later or they really make things happen. Uh it will it will be them and the rest of Latin America, for the most part, are going to join the BRICS train at some point. So that was really what Argentina represents is this, you know, the cat is out of the bag. There is no uh, there's no arresting this process in Latin America. So these countries are so critical. Ethiopia, I mean, well, that was Ethiopia the surprise. Ethiopia didn't even know they didn't even know they were going to get a bid like they did. it. So shocked, and the prime president was just like his his messaging was so gracious and just amazing, and how it was just like this is incredible for Ethiopia. Like they couldn't believe it; they were just so honored. It was such a a beautiful thing. And then, yeah. like you said, I said the same thing. I was like, these are all statement pieces. All of these new additions, they every just took in like one. every like quadrant of the Arab League. They were like, you, 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 and Iran. Thank you. Like, yep, <laughs> yep. that's it. And so like the Argentina thing, I mean, even if they don't join, like you said, it already opened up that door in South America. I mean, I don't know if you've talked to Pepe since, but he's going crazy. He doesn't care who joins from South America. He wants the whole continent in there. But I mean, yeah. now, now we're seeing Bolivia saying, you know what, we'll take drones for lithium and Venezuela saying, we'll take, we'll sell you some oil for a nuclear power plant. This is cool. So yeah, you're definitely right. Definitely seeing some more moving pieces and people like really working together iran coming out of isolation to work with the yeah. saudis on a on a, a nuclear power plant to, to work with with uh china on a brand new airport and to go to venezuela and go out of their way they don't need venezuela's oil they're teaching them how to sell it like it's just a really incredible incredible things are happening totally yeah no it's it's totally and then you know iran what I think is striking about Iran is that it was the least surprising maybe of those uh, who were admitted, but no less significant because, yeah, Russia and China in particular, but really the whole global south has been for years working very hard to bring Iran out of its isolation 
to essentially reject the unilateral sanctions of the United States um, and its uh, allies who follow along with them. And uh, Iran joining is just part and parcel. It just joined the Shanghai Cooperation Organization as well. I mean, it's part and parcel of bringing into the fold. Now we see the DPRK slowly but surely coming out of isolation with China and Russia holding multiple high-level meetings in the matter of a summer. Yeah, Yeah. so during the celebration of the armistice, of course, Sergei Shoigu was there, Russia's, um, you know, a top uh, military uh, official. And uh, uh, now during the celebration of uh i believe it is the anniversary of the founding Mm. of the dprk you also have high level delegations from russia and china again and the interesting thing about that in china if you read chinese media especially the global times they'll tell you like this is this is a statement this is a statement to show that we're not going to allow the region to be used as a launching pad against all of us so we recognize that when things like the trilateral summit in Camp David happened at the end of, uh, uh, I believe it was last month, uh, where we rec- we see this, we see this happening, and we're going to respond in kind. Now, we don't view the DPRK in the same way. You had Russia and China recently also rebuke any harsher sanctions on the DPRK at the UN. So it's, it's an ongoing process that is all about bringing the DPRK out of its isolation because it's you know, the sanctions of the DPRK, some of the harshest in the world. And it also is a political statement. It's a geopolitical statement saying that this is uh, this is not what you think it is. We are we are not sorry about that. <laughs> we are not going to uh, 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 allow for you, the United States, to uh, do whatever you want to us, to to isolate us and to to uh, tear us apart. And so the DPRK is going to be central to any kind of development of a multipolar world in Asia. It always was going to be central to this because you can't have multipolarity. You can't have a, a semblance, any semblance of peace when you have one country that's still at war. And that war includes the systematic isolation of the country uh, similar to Iran, but even worse in the sense that the DPRK is still formerly at war with the United States. It's just that there aren't uh, guns ablaze right now. That's all an armistice is. And so the mm-hmm. fact that these countries, Russia and China, right, there's all these murmurs that Russia is going to get into some kind of weapons pact with the DPRK. I think they are simply rumors. I, I, I think really? I think that South they already Korea, are in a pact. I yeah, think. no, but the, but Russia <laughs> already supplies weapons to anybody. Uh, Russia has, yeah, doesn't no. care. Um, so, you know, Russia doesn't, uh, you know, in my opinion, I don't think Russia really needs arms from the DPRK. No. But I do think that that relationship militarily, yeah, it's going to, it's going to exist. It's not as if the Soviet Union wasn't a huge supporter of the DPRK. And, and Russia is, yeah and russia is going to keep they literally were like uh, touting every leninism and every stalinism when they were in their guerrilla warfare like i think people forget because we know so little about the dprk how strong that relationship between the dprk and and the soviet union is and people you know in the west it's like the russia is the soviet union when we talk about the bad stuff but when we talk about the good stuff it was all of the soviet union together but in the real world where normal people exist, they 
equate them. And that's why mm -hmm. you've seen these African nations with Russian flags or the DPRK continuing oh, to work yeah. totally. so, And what did you yeah. think about afterwards when Shoigu said, he said, North Korea has the strongest army in the world. He said they have the strongest military in the world. And yeah. I said, maybe he's just doing like that Russian kind of <laughs> silliness. But it's a part like of me a... was hoping that I was like, come on, maybe they are really strong. I mean, everything they do is in, is in spite of everything that they've been put through. So, I mean, that yeah. builds strength and character. Definitely. I mean, it, it's interesting to hear that because, of course, the DPRK, despite its advances, ballistic missiles and nuclear weapons, huge advances. But um, the DPRK, uh, even though we don't have measurements because the DPR is very close to the chest because it has to be. We don't really, we can't really investigate how strong, what kind of capacity does it really have? It's not going to just expose that to the world. But at the same time, we know that DPRK is probably behind technologically, even if it is advancing. It's why it's working so hard to build these uh, nuclear capabilities in order to defend itself. However, there's a lot more to uh, warfare than just having the best weapons. Uh, we can see the United States struggling in Ukraine as part of the folly that if you just have the best technology, if you just have the most dangerous weapons, that you're going to win a war. The DPRK is one of, I think, a handful of countries in the world where they have an uh, entire country mobilized to defend itself. Uh, that is very rare in geopolitics, in the history of the world, history of nation states. Very rare to have an entire people, 100% of the population, without any hesitancy to defend itself from aggression. And uh, that in and of itself, I think, gives it a strong advantage over any country, including the United States, that would attempt to wage a war against it because the United States wouldn't have that. The United States would um, have to resort to- You're not picking up arms to defend the borders of the United States? Yeah, no, but <laughs> I don't know many people who would want to do that. Only a very tiny few people. And now we see how horrible the recruitment issues are for the U.S. military. Like it's, it is becoming harder and harder for the U.S. military to maintain its empire, especially on a volunteer basis when- uh, uh, people are really getting into it for economic reasons, and most of the war dreams and all of this uh, fervor for war has been shattered by conflicts like the one in Ukraine and like the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq. There's a lot of fatigue around constantly getting at the quagmire after quagmire, and the DPRA doesn't have that problem because everything is about its self-defense. Yes. And it has the recent <laughs> experience, just three, four generations now, of being invaded in every single generation. This is the irony, right? It's a little different from even like a Cuba, which you could say, well, if Cuba was invaded, everyone would defend itself. But Cuba hasn't been invaded in quite some time, hasn't been targeted in that way. Economically, yes, but not militarily in the same manner. But the DPRK has right along that demarcated zone, the DMZ, it has South Korean troops with uh, armed to the teeth with US weaponry, uh, alongside U.S. advisors and troops themselves right on its border, constantly conducting military exercise after military exercise. So the DPRK has an entire population mobilized to defend itself from the very real prospects of a hot war reemerging. So, yeah, there really is no it is really difficult. The United States has seen this many times in its history, even in just the last 50 plus years. It's really difficult to defeat 
a country when you have that dynamic. And they couldn't do it to Korea. They tried. But there's a reason why Korea is divided deeply an outpost of the United States, like, for example, Japan is. And it's because they could not defeat the DPRK. And they're unlikely to in any at any point in time in the future, which means that opportunities as the empire crumbles from within, as it crumbles from without, the opportunities for China and Russia to push forward diplomatically, economically, and militarily with the DPRK opens up. Because it's not easy. I, I mean, China and Russia have had to walk a very delicate line over the course of the last several decades with this partnership and with this relationship. You know, China recently brought, it didn't just bring itself in a delegation to celebrate the founding, but it also brought food and also brought aid. And it also made a huge statement saying, yeah, no, the DPRK is having troubles because of sanctions and we're going to bring aid. So uh, that can be alleviated. So it, that is kind of the message here is uh, we're not going to let the DPRK uh, be alone, especially now that there are plans to target all three of us. So if all three countries are being targeted in a similar manner for similar reasons by the United States, why would Russia and China allow that to happen without reaching out to DPRK, which already has uh, pretty friendly relations with both uh, and not say, well, we should work even closer together because now obviously is the time where it's possible, where we can do that. And I think we're going to see some really interesting things in the next five to 10 years with this partnership. I think we're all, we are going to see, I don't think, I think the South Korean intelligence was actually leaking something that was probably uh, misguided in the sense that there's some like new arms deal that's going to bring North Korean weapons to Russia. I don't think that's needed. But I do think we're going to see military to military partnerships increase between the two countries. And I also think we're going to see economic cooperation increase, which is probably most important for the DPRK at this point, is to get China and Russia to increase and enhance their level of trade. And even though this is a long way off and very difficult to do, very complicated, uh, I don't know if, for example, BRICS will ever be able to admit a country like the DPRK, given its diplomatic status. But to see them participate more in infrastructure projects as the DPRK seeks an opening up model, which I do think it will pursue um, in the years to come, will also, uh, I think, uh, be on the table. I do think we'll see more like kind of like a Vietnam where Vietnam isn't 100% a formal member, for example, the Belt and Road Initiative, even though, you know, it's kind of this like non-technical relationship because for diplomatic reasons. I think we'll still see Belt and Road-like projects and things like that occur um, between Russia, China, and the DPRK as well, because the DPRK does not want to be the so-called hermit kingdom. It's always said it is. It does not want to be isolated. The sanctions are the thing isolating it. The threat of war is what isolates the DPRK. And uh, surely the moment the opportunity arises, all three of these countries are going to build uh, stronger economic ties it's 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 a foregone conclusion it's going to happen and it's probably going to happen sooner than later if the united states continues to go down this reckless path for itself and if and, and the nato countries as well the more that they kind of shoot themselves in the foot the more that they open up these opportunities for uh countries like this to to build alternatives yeah, I think we have time for one more question. And one thing that's been in the news uh, lately, especially in the West, has been China's economy in trouble, uh, economic slowdown. Could you, as our last closing question, tell us a bit about the economic situation currently in China? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, this is a great question because the the, the information and misinformation about this is is pretty rampant. Uh, there's been a lot of alarmism about deflation, which I would really love. I haven't spoken to anyone in China yet about this. I would love the opinions on so-called deflation in China because when, uh, when I was there talking about it, for example, there were some uh, of the staffers of our delegation group, the uh, Chinese Association for International Understanding, some of them were quite young and kind of moving up. They were very young, like party members, and they were moving up and they were, they were doing this um, as like a service, part of their uh, service that, uh, and also part of their mentality of what they wanted to build as a party member. And, and I was talking to them about some of these problems because it's usually the younger members who you could really see having a big opinion about something like the economic situation right now. And, you know, he, many of them would outline how, how challenging it can be, especially in the big cities uh, with opening up and reform. One of the best things about it was that it raised the level of developments very fast. And one of the hardest things about it was that it uh, opened up the door for possible contradictions like really high housing prices, which you do see in Beijing and Shanghai. And uh, one, of, one of the interesting things uh, one of them told me was he was like, oh, no, I guarantee you that housing prices are going to start falling. And this is where a lot of the alarmism is. He's like, they're going to start falling because China has a campaign to make housing for living, not for speculation. And right now the government is working really hard to ensure that's going to happen. And one of the ways they've done it is unlike in the United States, where, for example, you will have these big private developers build all of this real estate and they'll get tax breaks for making, I don't know, what, 5 to 10% low income based on area immediate income, which ends up actually being a very high income, which basically just makes it 100% luxury development. Uh, what China is doing is they're uh, putting into place a policy that not many people talk about or know about where any development that occurs, housing that is, let's say, market rate, there has to be a parallel building that is for people whose incomes may not be able to afford purchasing, you know, market rate apartments. So by putting those things together, you automatically lower prices by essentially neutralizing comp competition and, and allowing for monopolies to not form, right? You're not going to have a monopoly luxury market by having it flood the entire market. And so that's what they're doing now. And so we're seeing housing prices slow down especially as the government clamps down on uh, speculation uh, and as the companies themselves that participate in the speculation end up getting into their own trouble and then having to get into negotiations with the government to uh, fix the problem. Unlike getting bailed out, they're actually being forced to fix, like Evergrande, for example, they had to sell off a whole lot of assets to the government in order to continue to exist as an entity. And, and that just doesn't happen in the United States and Europe, for example, where oftentimes when these big real estate developers get into trouble, when the speculators get into trouble, they just get government money and they just continue on doing what they're doing. So housing prices are falling and uh, there has been the so-called deflation. But uh, from, from my estimation, it was it's something that was wanted because when prices get higher, it's harder for people to live. But at the same time, I, I think that, you know, the United States has done its best to arrest China's economic development. 
and it has had an impact uh, mm-hmm. before the Huawei Mate 60 was released and I was there the conversation was well the model before that was not able to secure the kind of advanced chips to have 5G technology because the United States had uh, 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 you know implemented the semiconductor export ban and Huawei just didn't have access so it was 4G and there was a scandal and consumers were like oh screw this phone we'll get the older phone that has 5G and it actually hurt Huawei's business quite a lot but as that was happening, it was quite clear. I think I got back on July 11th or 12th or 12th. I forget time zone. But I got back around that time. And immediately the media started talking about how Huawei was gearing up to release a phone, gearing up to release um, a, a t- a technology that shows that now it has the capabilities to to get back its 5G cap- capability. So. And that, that happened with the Huawei Mate 60 Pro. So the, the economic situation in China is interesting. It There are, uh, you won't meet anyone that won't say, well, the, everything is perfect here, right? Like everything, it, there's just uh, no problems. But these problems are very managed. They're very manageable. And uh, much of it has to do with the world economic slowdown. There is less demand um, um, because of the world economic slowdown and because of the after effects of COVID. So things have slowed down a bit, but at the same time, China's priority over the last five to 10 years has not been growth for growth's sake. Uh, I'm, the fact that China grows between five and 8% still, uh, despite with the collective West growing at half that rate, if lucky, uh, goes to show that China's growth rate is still quite impressive. It's just that China has actually moved on to quality growth and for growth that serves particular areas of society and the society's needs. So it's not just, well, we want to build all these houses. We want to produce and pump out all of these commodities just because we want to reap in revenue. Like that's no longer needed or the case. Uh, Even these young party members would say, well, you know, uh, that was the mission of the generation before us, which was to get us to be prosperous. Now we're in the business of getting China to be as strong as it can be. And that means that these internal contradictions, these problems that still exist, they need to be the priority and we need to focus on quality growth. And that's what's been happening. And so all the alarmism about China's economy, it, it, it seems to happen at very frequently much more frequently than before but we can almost guarantee that every single year couple of years there's going to be some china collapse story and it always falls flat because it's just it's just not true and it doesn't and it never has to be true because china's government is very much committed to ensuring such a thing doesn't happen that its involvement in the world economic uh capitalist market does not mean that it is subject to the same whims and fits yes. and crashes as the United States, the collective West, and most of the world. Most of the world yeah. cannot say that they can protect themselves from the worst excesses of a world economic slowdown. But China can, even if it has some impact, it will have some impact if you're connected at all to the world economic system. So that, that, I think, really sums up for me where China's economic situation is. There are problems. There are issues that people are very aware of. 
there are a lot of issues with sanctions and consumer demand and these things because of what's happened and transpired over the last three to four years. But at the same time, the focus and emphasis on quality growth allows for these challenges to not just be maneuvered around, but also to be addressed pretty directly. And that's why you have this kind of mind boggling and I think earth shattering development for the collective West, where it's quite obvious that China has been working all of this time to subvert and undermine the U.S.'s attempt to sanction Huawei and to sanction its tech sector. And everything it's done has worked. And now we're seeing the fruits of it with developments like the Huawei Mate 60 Pro that has 5G and that's all made in China. Uh, now the capabilities of China are just, they're too difficult to ignore. And th the questions, and we're going to see probes from the United States, we're going to see uh, it lose its mind for quite some time because uh, th there really is nothing left it can do economically to isolate China unless it wants to take the world into a tailspin similar to what it did with Russia. If it wants to take Europe and the collective West into a tailspin, then it will try to escalate sanctions on China. But it, it will be very difficult and complicated given that uh, uh, Russia is very tied to the world economy based on its energy sector, but China is very tied to the world economy in essentially all of the most advanced ways. And that that leads to even more issues, uh, let alone the fact that we're not going to see sanctions on Russia ease up, which means any sanctions you place on China are only going to compound the problems with the entire sanctions regime. Well, I think that's a good way to end it, a good summary of uh, the world in uh, flux and in change. Danny, thank you so much. You know, but now you have to come back and we have to talk about how China is not going to bail out the United States for this economic collapse like they did in 20, 2008, which most people don't even know about, and how uh, they absolutely trolled the hell out of Apple <laughs> for the entire Yeah, month. I forgot about that. Wow, it's so true. They trolled it and, you know, they want to say, oh, it's because the government officials aren't going to use Apple phones. Like, damn right, they're not going to use Apple phones right now. Like, first of all, they don't need to. And also those phones are, you know, they're bugged as hell. But yeah. also, but like, it's even they don't want to acknowledge that the release of the new Huawei phone is actually what is also scaring Apple because they are risking. There's been videos of the difference between Huawei stores and Apple stores right now in China. And there's just so many people looking for this new <laughs> Huawei phone and so few people in the Apple stores. And, and that's what really is scaring Apple's uh, shareholders is losing the Chinese consumer market um, based upon China's advances. I mean, that's just economics 101. And so uh, uh, they don't want, but the media doesn't want to acknowledge it. Not even Apple. Of course, Apple doesn't. Apple will stay very hush-hush because they don't want to anger China unless they right. find themselves on the way out. But uh, the United States' uh, mainstream media, they don't want to acknowledge the fact that economic, this is how economic competition works. When you lose, you lose. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, that's what's happening is, uh, you know, Apple is not the only game in town in China. Well, to close, Danny's Chinese handlers, please get us at least five Huawei's. Uh, we will I will literally replace my iPhone right now 
Yes. CPC, <laughs> please send us the new Huawei. Thank you. <laughs> yes, please. Thank you. Always, it's been an amazing episode. And thank you, JM. And thanks, everybody who tuned in for waking up with us, especially in America. It's really early on a Sunday. And we will see you next time.